0: I'll get this arranged. I would invite you to join me in First Samuel. I'll start in chapter seven. We'll wrap up around 15. Oh, first service. Thank God for first service. Uh, they figured out that I made two separate handouts. This one has numbers one and two. This one has numbers three and four. You can't even be lixdexics and make this work. So let's correct it now. If you have a one and a two, you're good to go. If you have a three and a four, Just make them a one and a two. That's it. Make them a one and two. This is what happens when I do the handout and Chris doesn't do the handout. And this is why we thank God for Chris. All right. So, uh, sorry, Chris Connick, our office manager, not having an identity crisis, at least in front of you. All right. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Some of you have probably paid pool. I got to play some pool uh, recently, and you you may have. shared this experience i had where you hit the cue ball and it hits the other ball and it goes some random place and bound and then it's like over in a pocket over here it goes in and you're like yeah i meant to do that you just act like you totally meant to do that and it was a complete luck shot some of you may have had that happen to you some of you may just be so good that it never happens because it goes right where you want it to every time some of you uh maybe as a kid you uh, might have gone out in the yard and found Uh, an ant or an ant hill, and grabbed a mason jar and jammed a bunch of ants in it and then exercised your power over the ant. Be that whatever it was. You may have had that experience. You, uh, even today, may have the experience of deciding I'm gonna accomplish all of these errands today. I'm going to go both to the gym and the grocery store and the car wash and I'm gonna get my haircut, or you're gonna get your haircut. And then you'll go and you'll do those things. And you'll know, you'll think, you know, Grant Line Road's a good place for all of that, and I'll get it done. Uh, authority, I'm just kind of playing with little ideas of authority. You have the authority to go do that errand list. Power, knowledge, you have the power to get in your car and get yourself there, or on your bike and pedal for a long time. Or you, you have also uh, the authority and the power, and then you have the knowledge, you have like the awareness of where those things are and in what order you would prefer to do them. Like you might say, you're crazy, you gotta hit the gym right before the grocery and then go home. So you wanna be sweaty for the haircut? I don't know, whatever. You have the authority, the power, and the, the knowledge to be able to do that. Last week we celebrated the resurrection of King Jesus, And so as we now uh, welcome back those of you that might be joining us for the first time, and last week was your first week, and we had big words like atonement and justification, we're going to give you only one big word today, and it's on your handout, and that is sovereign. Today we're discovering that we have a king who is sovereign And to put that all up into just something really basic and simple to understand, as you and I both have authority, power, and knowledge, a sovereign has unlimited authority, unlimited knowledge, unlimited power. And we understand the Lord God to be also omnipresent. So he has unlimited presence outside of areas we don't even know they exist, the earth, the universe, the galaxy, beyond... He exists there. So let's bundle all those words and let's leave behind the idea that this is confusing and let's just bundle them together and together say sovereignty. One, two, three. Sovereignty. We don't have to be confused by this. Let's not err. Now some of you may have looked this word up. Some of you may be aware of this word. Some of you may be years down the journey of maturation in Christ and becoming just like Jesus and you've already wrestled with this word and maybe you've bumped up against an oversimplification of sovereignty, which is the, the expectation that if God can do it, God must do it. And, and let's just draw that like the oversimplified cartoon that it is. It belongs in the Sunday funnies. If you can do something, should you have to do it? No. So if God can do something, should he therefore have to do it? Great. Let's wrap that up and leave it behind here with the things that were maybe confusing about the word sovereignty. And let's leave it there and just agree that sovereignty means all these things wrapped together. He doesn't have to, but he can, because of his power, his knowledge, and his presence do anything. So what we're discovering today is how we can see his power, his knowledge, his presence, his authority at play in Scripture and maybe in our very lives. So I'm, I'm just reading through 1 Samuel just over and over and over because that's where we are for now. So we're going to try to cover 7 through 15. And I would invite you guys to read some of the things I'm going to summarize today and see for yourself if you see how God is sovereign in the history of Israel and in the individual lives of the people they're in. So your first blank, and uh, let me do this for both of you if you missed this. Your first blank, God is sovereign. God works with us. That's your top blank. You might want to write a letter A by it. I bet our uh, admin in the office would have this very well organized, and there would be an A by that, because below that's number one, and we'll get to that one in a second. But letter A, God works with us. So number one, or number three, if you're the paper with the threes, uh, number one or three, is that God works with Israel to uh, defend the borders of Israel. In some cases, reestablish the, the promised land of Israel. And I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading from verses 9 through 11. And I want you to see the theme. I want you to see how a true sovereign king works with Israel people. So you might want to observe where verbs have been done by who. And we'll do that together really quickly. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. Remember, because they brought the ark out to win in battle, and that didn't go as planned, because God isn't an ark. And you can't just take God and objectify and be like, he's going to be our weapon. Let's take the ark. So they've just repented of that. Samuel is now crying out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord, now we've got two players, and look at the actions, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Israel. Now, who else is acting? And the men of Israel went out from Isba and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth-kar. Both God and Israel work together. Dozens of you have worked together on a project. Even right here in our own 300 hallway, dozens of us have spent our time and effort to revive and restore the 300 hallway from dank, dingy, and really nasty to beautiful, shiny, and why can't we live there yet? Uh, Because it needs cleaned. But dozens of us joined Rusty. You guys want to say it that way with me? Rusty. I don't feel like you guys feel like I feel about Rusty. And this is just what I'll say about Rusty as our part-time building manager who works like way past full-time. Rusty could have done that hallway all by himself and he would have done a much better job than I did when I was there helping. But Rusty allowed us to work alongside him. And we might have got it done faster. I'm not sure how much cleaning up after me he had to do. But we have worked together, even ourselves. So we understand this idea of together. It's just that in this situation, We have an infinitely powerful, infinitely capable, all-knowing and loving sovereign king who chooses to work with us. Look at how God is now, even now, with us, loving the whole earth. Look at how now, and we just celebrated the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, we'll look forward in a church calendar to his ascension, And then Pentecost, the coming, the arrival and the empowerment of his people by his Holy Spirit. So imagine now how God's still working with us and through us by the power of literal God at work in our hearts and lives. He's loving the whole world. God still now works in and through us. Uh, John records Jesus' words this way, I in them... You in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, so that, so there's a reason, so that, so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you loved me. God works with us. He works with Israel, and God works also with Saul. And that's your number two or four i am not the handout guy but uh we got here so let's get through that together two or four say, um god works with saul god works with saul in the same way he worked with israel to defend establish strengthen and maintain the borders of his promised land and i want to summarize this story from first samuel 11 i'll be summarizing 13 in a moment so stay in those areas 1 Samuel 11 tells the story of Nahash the Ammonite and his attack on Israel. He threatens, in fact, to gouge out the eyes of the men of the town of Jabesh and to force them then to become the slaves of the Ammonites. Just a cursory knowledge of the people of Israel. They were Hebrews in the land of Egypt under a certain guy named Pharaoh. And God delivered them because they're his people. Now somebody's coming along saying, I'm going to make them my people. How do you think that's going to go? Here's how it goes. The Israelites bargain for peace and they don't get it. But they do get a break. They get kind of a reprieve in the battle. They get to take a breath or two or three. And they send for help to Saul, their new king. They send for help and they say, this guy's coming to gouge your eyes out and make us his slaves. And uh, the Bible says that uh, Saul is following these oxen behind a plow through a field. And he stops, he hears the wailing of the people of Israel, and he chops up a bunch of oxen and sends the chopped up pieces of oxen with messengers throughout the land of Israel. And here's what he says. Imagine this being your leader. Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Boy, they got a king, didn't they? Anyway, the result is 330,000 men arrive to fight on behalf of Israel. The men of Jabesh get word of their help soon to arrive, and they get their time extended a little further, and just in time, before the next day is even over, the Ammonites were defeated to such a degree that scripture says, quote, no two of them were left together. So God is sovereign, yet he chooses to work with Saul. He chooses to work with Israel to establish, I'm sorry, yes, to establish the borders of Israel, and then to defeat The Ammonites, God is sovereign, yet he chooses to work with us too. So the Lord works in and through humans. That's a pretty big piece. That sets us apart from so many other religions. Our God can use us in accomplishing his perfect will this is uh, probably how you're thinking about it. Oh, sure, he can. Um, Moses. Yeah, he let everybody out of Pharaoh. He, he can use people. Or Saul, or David, or Solomon, or he used Peter, of course, and then he used Paul. He can, he can use like Elijah from the Bible. But God can use simple, everyday acts. I think it's important to remember a story like Margie's, who writes, I was grocery shopping with my older son. He was... Two or three at the time, we knew that he was on the spectrum, but we didn't really yet know what that meant for us. What we were learning is that he could experience intense frustration. But the delay from his speech was so far back there that by the time he experienced that frustration and eventually was able to verbalize it, (sighs) lots of feelings had come out his mouth and his body. They weren't the words, I'm frustrated. He started to cry in the aisle of the checkout. He was losing his mind because I wouldn't get him this candy toy thing that he just had to have. And of course, the woman in front of us, you know, she's looking over her shoulder, shooting daggers. And eventually she sees, be quiet, and my son. And I I admit I probably should have taken him out of the store. We don't have infinite money. My food was on the conveyor belt. I needed it for dinner tonight. We had to stay. Flustered. I. Fumbled through payment, jammed my groceries in bags, crushing the bread. Who knows about the eggs? I rushed to the parking lot. I put my son in the car. I slammed the door and I collapsed against it, crying tears of pain and feeling waves of anger come over my body. Why? Why? I didn't ask for this. He didn't ask for this. Why can't people just be quiet? Why can't they maybe ask how they could help? And a lady not much older than me gently approaches and whispers, I can't offer any advice, but I can give you a hug. A simple act of compassion is one way that we can join a sovereign king, a sovereign God in his work on this earth. She, Margie writes, love entered my most pain-filled moment that day she simply hugged me she went on her way there wasn't even time for it to feel weird but i'll never forget her kindness we don't have to be a giant in the faith building an ark or leading an army that we can join a sovereign king in living out his kingdom values as everyday people becoming fully devoted followers, and image bearers of Christ to a broken and hurting world when we offer compassionate action. So to review there, we've got um, what I'm guessing uh, our office manager Chris would have said is, A, God is sovereign. God works with us. God is sovereign. God works with us. He worked with Israel. He worked with Saul. And he works with us. Uh, Like a vulture circling a carcass, the dude is looking for a parking spot. You've all been there yourself. You just really want to not park in the North 40. He's looking for a parking spot. He's getting super frustrated. Can't find a spot. Don't even want to go shopping. I hate store. Okay. Going to make a deal with God. God, if you just give me a parking spot, give me a good parking spot, I'll go to church every Sunday. And it's right about that time that the clouds part and the sun shines down on a spot right by the front door. And he says, never mind, I found one. This is what uh, our next blank is. God is sovereign. God works in spite of us. God works in spite of us. So I'm going to summarize first. I'm going to read. I'm sorry. We're going to read. We're not summarizing yet. I'm going to read, and I would like you to be looking for three words he will take. But let me set this before, uh, before we read it. This is your blank number three or number one. Uh, God works in spite of Israel. I don't think we have a slide for this. This is my fault. Um, God works in spite of Israel. So let's set the scene before you guys start counting he will take uh, this this time is when uh do you remember when the people of israel didn't really like samuel's sons maybe from a sunday or two ago and they said to samuel dude you're old we want a king like the rest of the nations it, uh, samuel records it this way in the book now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations so we've got Sin right here because they want to be like other nations. And then we do have some sin here, but let's be really clear that God did set in their hearts, and this was in Genesis, the concept of a king. So God foresaw the need for a specific kind of king. And we'll see how Saul lives up to that, and then how Saul images Jesus like you and I try to do. So this is right after Israel says, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This is what I want us to see. Uh, uh, You're counting. He will take. Okay, so God gives them a king, and then here's his warning from Samuel. You're going to count, he will take, and see how many we got there. Uh, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. And he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. Some to plow his ground, reap his harvest, make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants... He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out, because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. We can see a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty here. Number one, because we're not the Israelites. I know I love to think that, but we can see a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty, his infinite power, his infinite knowledge, his infinite wisdom, his infinite capacity to act. And we can see it at work here as he accomplishes his purposes in spite of Israel. And we see that because Israel, remember they sinned when they said, Samuel, you're old, give us a king like all the other nations. And they rejected God as their king. So we're starting to develop a little bit of a picture of who our king should be and what our king should look like. And sometimes that's not necessarily a comparison as much as it's a contrast as we look at the lives of different leaders through scripture. So here is, that's a digression, but let's get back. Here is how a sovereign king, a a perfect king of kings, one worth following, can execute both judgment and his will in spite of Israel or you or me. Here's how a sovereign God can operate. He can give them a king that both images the idea that you need a king and he can give them a king and through the free will of that king and those people continue to work his will by judging them for their sin and by beginning to show them what a king should look like in their lives. God is sovereign in spite of Israel's actions. All right, this will be, uh, I think this is number four, or number two, depending on the paper you picked up. Right here, I think some of you who are like masters of logic, and maybe uh, deduction, you already know what this is, don't you? God is sovereign and works in spite of who? In spite of Saul. God is sovereign and works in spite of, of Saul. I want to summarize. This is uh, 13. Saul had, is it 13? Let's make sure it's 13 before I tell you that, because some of you may want to follow along. I think this is Saul's action. Yeah, 13. So Saul had reigned for two years, yep, as king. Uh, And he'd mustered this army of about 3,000 to be like a full-time army, defeating Uh, little uprisings along the borders of Israel, establishing her boundaries of that promised land. And he he was doing something else that's important to note. And we're talking about how God is sovereign and still working with Saul and now working in spite of Saul because Saul, really Jonathan, in the case of chapter 13, has defeated some people and then Saul claims the victory. And his troops are defeating the Philistines and Saul is claiming the victory. So it both encouraged the people he's leading, but it also kind of pumped him up artificially. It created a Saul that didn't actually exist. And then when trouble came, Saul had to be what he agreed that he was, what he pretended to be in front of Israel. What he pretended to be was like a king that they needed and like a king that God's people deserve. But he wasn't that king. He encouraged the people. He got them on the battlefield. But he failed to perform when the going gets tough. He finds himself in a really tight spot now because the Philistines have brought 6,000 horsemen and 30,000 chariots and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And he's thinking, oh, boy, I'm in some trouble. The Israelites, in fact, start leaving. They're hiding in caves, and they're hiding in cisterns or wells, and they're hiding in tombs. Imagine the terror to cause us to go hide in a tomb. That's a lot of terror for me. They were even crossing the Jordan, pretending like they never lived there, and they're not an Israelite. Saul feels the pressure that Saul created for Saul by claiming to be something he wasn't, accepting the praise of the people on behalf of the actor, God. This pressure leads him to make a really foolish choice. He steps into Samuel's position and he makes the sacrifice of a burnt offering and a peace offering before the Lord instead of waiting for Samuel. And almost immediately, like a kid in the kitchen, on a stool pushed up to the counter with their hand in the cookie jar, like parents can't hear that lid come off. Come on. You can imagine the foolish king trying to explain to Samuel why he did what he knew he shouldn't do. And these are the words in Samuel chapter 13, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established... Your kingdom over Israel. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The sovereign Lord, a true king, continues to accomplish his will in spite of Saul. I feel like this light's insufferable and it's just going to explode, so let's... Let's not be nervous about that anymore. let will just it'll take a break. So later, Saul is sent to execute judgment on a different group of people. The Lord's judgment on a whole different group of people. But instead, we see Saul fail again and we see a sovereign God able to enact his will in spite of Saul. I'm in chapter 15, verse... 11, I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. In verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord, but he hasn't because instead of going into the land and killing every living thing. Saul was saving some sheep. In verse 14 Samuel said, "What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear?" Samuel said, "They they see a true king is not going to blame the people he leads for his faults, but we have Saul. They they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we've devoted to destruction. See how he tries to make this about a sacrifice? When in reality, he's failed to lead them. He's failed to even communicate God's expectation that everything with a heartbeat would die because of the fact that they attacked Israel when they were on their way out of Egypt. And then in verse 15, Saul said they brought them from the Amalekites, blaming his people. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the same as the sin of divination. And presumption is the same as the sin of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God is sovereign and works in spite of Saul, in spite of Israel, and God can work in spite of us. The time was 749 AM, December 7th, 1941. Commander Mitsu Fukida of the Japanese Imperial Navy was admiring the billowing white clouds and the brilliant sunrise as he led a squadron of 360 Japanese fighters and bombers over the ocean, over the Hawaiian islands of Oahu. Just four days after his 39th birthday, Fukita was in charge of a bold gamble by Imperial Japan to knock out the US fleet at Pearl Harbor, taking their defense of Asia and the Pacific out of the equation. Seeing the fleet peacefully at anchor 300 meters below his plane, Fukita smiled as he ordered All squadrons plunge into attack. He then radioed back to the Japanese fleet 230 miles away. Tora, Torah, Torah! and the attack had begun. What followed was in the words of President Franklin Roosevelt, a day that shall live in infamy. Of eight battleships in Pearl Harbor, five were destroyed. Fourteen other ships were sunken or damaged. More than 2,300 Americans lay dead or dying or trapped within a hull of a sinking ship. Fukita later described the day as the most thrilling exploit of my career. At that same time, Sergeant Jacob, <laughs> Sergeant Jacob de Chazar of the U.S. Army Air Corps was on KP duty. He was peeling potatoes in a base in Oregon. And upon hearing the news over the radio, he flings the potato the wall, at the wall Splattering, he says, those Japs are going to pay. The down payment for Dishazzar was then to join a volunteer special squadron formed by Colonel Jimmy Doolittle, whose mission was to take the war back to the Japanese in a daring bombing raid over Tokyo using B-25 bombers taking off from a USS Hornet. In military terms, the Doolittle raid of 1942 was only a pinprick, But as a morale booster for Americans, it was a stunning success. But Dishazer's B-25 ran out of fuel before it could reach a safe area in China. He and his crew were forced to bail out over Japanese-held territory. Dishazer and his crews would spend the next 40 months as prisoners of war in Japan. 34 of them in solitary confinement, during which they were routinely tortured and deprived, deprived of basic needs. His already burning hatred of the Japanese was fanned into an inferno. The Shazar barely remained alive. His solitary confinement gave him time to ponder the human condition, why war, why hatred. What could possibly cause this amount of hate between humans? And he started barely, faintly remembering some Sunday school lessons from childhood. He asked his Japanese guards for a Bible for two years. And finally he received it. He devoured the text of the scriptures. of The living word of God began to invade his heart and to, began to transform his mind. Lessons on mercy, forgiveness, redemption, began to change who he was. I discovered, he wrote, that God had given me new spiritual eyes and that when I looked at the enemy officers and the guards who had starved and beaten me and my companions so cruelly, I found my bitter heart turned soft, changed even to compassion, to loving pity towards them. I prayed for God to forgive my torturers, and I determined by the power of Christ at work in my heart and life to return to these people with a message of salvation I myself had received. On August 20th of 1945, a smiling Japanese guard swung open to cell door and said, war over, you go home now. Deshazzar wrote a book called, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. And after studying at Seattle Pacific College, he returned to Japan, this time as a missionary to his former enemies. Only a sovereign God, only a, a rightful king, only a king who's fit to rule, like a king of kings, like a king who's infinitely powerful, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely present, has what it takes to take from a war, from a prison cell, from torture and beating and hatred, and to redeem that, to create. The only person that knows what those people have done, the only person who can identify with just how wretched those lives that they lived were when they were the ones torturing those prisoners, only one could reach them, one like Dishazar, You see, only a sovereign God can take a disaster like that and bring life. We just celebrated a week ago, only a a sovereign king, a king of kings, could take death and bring life. And it's what he does in our hearts and our lives. And friends, if you're not believing that, today, you've got to. He wants to turn our death and our brokenness into life. Not just for us, not just for our families. For a world that's broken. (laughs) Out there in their own way, like, torturing people. In a prison cell, maybe of a bedroom, of a kid that really needs to live somewhere else now. We've got two more blanks. Uh, Your your second to last one is God is sovereign. God works both with us and in spite of. Of us, God works both with us and in spite of us. Can I have the proverb before we go on to the next slide? That proverb sixteen. So many of you probably memorize this, but this is kind of the verse that summarizes it: how God works with us and in spite of us. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord determines his steps and i'm i'm willing to bet that for some of you your your heart right now is tending towards what paul wrote to the romans hey, can we go to the roman side romans 8 and you already know 28 but god we know that god god for those who love him works everything together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose and then he Uh, He has inspired Moses to write it this way in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. uh, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So let's fill in our last blank. And this is that slide I had you skip. God will work out his will. God is sovereign. God will work out his will. I wonder what today God might be using in our lives. We can remember very early in the book of Samuel, the story of Hannah, how she faithfully suffered, how she faithfully walked through pain and trusted God alone in the midst of her pain. And what did God bring out of a life filled with pain, years of being made fun of for being barren? A son, Samuel, who leads Israel through so much turmoil. I wonder what God wants to do, what God maybe even today Maybe last week, maybe you in encountering this week, I'm not sure, but I'm wondering what God wants to be doing with an area of brokenness in your life. An area where sin has a stronghold, and it started to inch its way up onto the throne of your heart, and it's squeezing out the only rightful king. I wonder if maybe somehow you have made space for some kind of a disobedience to the only rightful king... And you are giving that space over to a a habit or a desire that is just not in line with the values of a kingdom of God. It prevents us from living the way that God would would live through us if we would let him. I'm I'm wondering if maybe he wants to, just like he did with DeShazzar, to, to maybe take the brokenness that's that started to creep up onto the throne of your life. You've given it space and you, you devote time to it, even allowing it to become something you think about more often than you don't. And I wonder what God wants to do in redeeming that in Cleansing it from our hearts and then allowing it to be used for His glory, because a rightful king, a king of kings, an infinitely powerful king, of course, should only then demand that he receives glory. It's the only rightful thing a righteous king should do. I wonder what God might be using in your life. Maybe it's pain, Maybe it's loss. Maybe it's this overwhelming sense that you have failed your family or your friends or even the Lord. And I wonder if the, if, if the Lord wants to turn that into something, but if you've been hearing a different voice that says you are the broken one, you are the damaged one, you are unable to ever be used by God, and I want you to know today, friends, that that's the voice of the accuser. That's not the voice of the rightful king. He laid his life down. We don't have to believe that trash. We get to believe a new life. We get to have new life. When we just turn away from that trash. Friends, I want to finish the story about Fukita. And as I finish it, I want you to see that God is sovereign and that He can work in us and through us, and He will work in spite of us if He has to. Fukita, for the Japanese, the hero of Pearl Harbor, was part of the Japanese task force. ...that was going now to attack Midway Island six months after Pearl Harbor. But he came down with a case of appendicitis and was evacuated to the rear. During the massive air battle in 1942, Japan lost hundreds of planes and pilots... ...and five ships, including all of its aircraft carriers. A crippling blow. Later in the war then, Fukita was in Hiroshima the day before the bomb... But he was called to an emergency meeting at Navy headquarters in Tokyo and survived the war unscathed. The only pilot to survive the entire war from beginning to end. We're remembering that a sovereign God, a King of Kings, infinitely powerful, knowledgeable, present, sovereign, is able to work amazing miracles out of the disaster of lives that we sometimes find ourselves living. After the war, Fukita returned to a life of farming, deeply shamed by Japan's loss, and still with the heart of a warrior, he lived this miserable existence of an unsatisfying life. The tension of the warrior heart and the massive loss Japan suffered. Even though he was married, he lived out this sinful disaster in his own family life. He had a wife on the farm and he had a mistress in Tokyo lying to his wife, destroying his own life, traveling there to meet her as frequently as he could. God can work through any circumstance. On one day in October of 48, while getting off the train in Tokyo, Fukita saw an American handing out leaflets in Japanese. The title caught his eye. I was a prisoner of Japan, written in Japanese, of course. It grabbed his attention immediately, especially since it started out talking about Pearl Harbor, his greatest day, as he said. Fukita was determined to learn more about this man, not out of any interest for Christianity, but because he wanted to know more about Deshazar. Even though they'd been enemies, he, envir- he admired the courage of Doolittle's raiders. He was taken with Dashar's christian testimony as well a friend told him you got to get a bible but fukita couldn't find one in japanese imagine the coincidence then a few days later on the same platform i wonder if living in the same pattern of broken sin i wonder same platform a man selling bibles in japanese get your bible food for your soul he yelled out in japanese struck by this odd coincidence Fukita buys a Bible, and he's reading. And Jesus' words in Luke pierce his heart. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Fukita later wrote, I was impressed that I was certainly one of those for whom Jesus had prayed. The many men I'd killed had been slaughtered in the name of patriotism, for I did not understand the love of Jesus. He changed from a bitter ex-war hero to a man representing Jesus on a new mission. Fukita went on to become an evangelist in Japan and in Asia and eventually met the man who brought him to Christ, Jacob the Shazar. 67 years the men were bitter enemies. Today, they're eternal brothers, a testimony to the power of, of a rightful king, a sovereign king, a king who deserves our everything, a king who says, I'm gonna take all the disaster that the evil one's brought on your life, that you've agreed to partner with him, all the brokenness and all the pain, and I'm gonna take that and turn that into something beautiful, maybe for you, maybe for your family, maybe for people that aren't even here yet, but need to be part of my kingdom and my family. And by God's grace, Georgetown Christian, as we, as just everyday people who maybe need to meet someone in a parking lot and express the compassion that we ourselves have experienced from his body here, maybe, maybe we get to show his love to someone who doesn't know him who doesn't experience that redemption and that power of love at work in their hearts and lives, maybe it will be because God is working with us. And maybe God will express his love in spite of us. And the choice is yours. If you have a decision to make this morning, I invite you to come to the front while we sing. You may want to accept Christ for the first time and say, my my life needs redeemed. I've never had Jesus on the throne of my heart, and he's the only rightful king to rule my life. Maybe that's a decision you've got to make this morning. Maybe the decision that you've got to make is I have been letting something cre- just creep up into the throne of my heart, and it is destroying my life, and I want to yield my life again to Jesus. And you want help walking through that? It's your time. I don't know what it is that's on your heart this morning, Georgetown Christian, but I believe that by God's grace, he wants to use this church to reach a hurting and broken world where people get to know the love that you and I experience, even celebrate every Sunday morning, drinking his blood and eating his body, remembering that Jesus said he's coming back and he will celebrate that very new covenant when he returns. Maybe there are those that need to be here because of a sovereign God, a rightful king at work, and your heart and life. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Father God, we're we're praying that you would be making each of us into the image of your son Jesus, a perfect king. Father, we understand that by your Holy Spirit, even now at work in our hearts and lives, convicting us to sin, maybe comforting pain, maybe pointing out places where we need to yield our lives to you, but, Father, we're aware that you're at work in our lives making us the people that you need us to be, that your kingdom value may be expressed to those who live lives without you. They suffer under the weight of the sin that is destroying the world and the lives they're in. Father, it's our prayer that by your power as a king of kings, as a sovereign Lord, to accomplish your will through our lives. It's our prayer that we would do that with you, that we would partner with you in your work of establishing your kingdom. Father, that we would not be found to be the ones that you are working in spite of. Father, by the, the power that is in the name of Jesus and by the power that you have alive and at work in each one of our hearts by your Holy Spirit, would you bring your kingdom here? Would you help us to live as citizens of your kingdom, representatives of your love for a world that is hurting and broken? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.